Anybody know? Yeah, there's been a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion, that's certainly true. There was confusion before that, though. Yeah. Aristotle and uh, Plato's answers were less and less accepted. Okay. Arguably the most important event of the last uh, uh, 700 years is 1492. Because that's the event that destroyed authority. Um, it was no longer sufficient to call upon Jesus or Aristotle because neither of these traditions could tell us anything about half of the world. All right? And if they didn't know about the other half of the world, what else don't they know? All right? So um, authority is alive and kicking in 1491, 1493, it's in trouble. Okay, and ever since it's been getting more and more difficult. Come in. I'm so sorry. All right. The human mind, both individually and collectively, sort of swings from one pole to another, from physics to metaphysics, or nature to the soul, or Athens to Jerusalem, or reason to impulse, or uh, feeling. Parse that the way you want. From materialism to idealism, and it's kind of a dialectical swing back and forth. Yeah. Much like the left brain and the right brain. Funny you should mention. <laughs> Isn't it handy what science? You are you're ahead of the class. I'll look at it. All right. So here's the deal. My argument is the Renaissance starts earlier than people realize. The original idea of the Renaissance was put together by a guy named Jacob Burkhardt, a Swiss historian, a Lutheran, who was had an axe to grind against Catholicism. Right. Um, it turns out that the Renaissance starts, my guess is about 1300. And what's important, something that hasn't been looked at as much as it should, is the Reconquista. The reconquering of Spain not only gets new people and land for Christianity, but even more important, they get access to Arabic and from the Arabs, Greek and Latin texts. Now, is this where we get the recovery of Aristotle? That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, William Warbeck is where they translated, and that's what. Remember, Aquinas can't read Greek. Right. So William Warbeck is a literal this translation. This is directly connected to Isabel and uh, what's his name, reunifying Spain. Right, but, but this is even before that. Wow. Right? So the, we're gradually pushing Islam out. The Islamic books are coming in, they're getting translated, and then we have to figure out what we're going to do with it. That's the real recovery of the, of the Greek and Latin tradition. Okay? Now, you may be surprised, but it's a fact. Who is it, if not Columbus, who decides that? Um, you can get to China by sailing west. Yeah, Marco Polo? No. He, go, he walks and he goes east. Magellan? No, Magellan is after. Oh. He'll be awkwardly circumnavigating for a while going the New World. Is yeah. I mean, the earliest years of the idea could be in Aristotle when he said that the Earth is a, is a sphere. Mm, maybe. Um, I, I think not. Yeah. For the Vikings? Nobody knows about what they did. No, the person who first, as far as I know, writes that it is possible to get to China by sailing west is a late medieval cardinal. Thus, 1300. Okay. What's his we name? also. Oh, What's his name? 
I, it's in my book, I forget. I have a brain like a colander nowadays, everything flows through. All right. Uh, but I mean, I, I can get that in But the point is this the recovery of Greek and Latin comes starting around 1300 with the breakup of the middle, medieval synthesis, the breakup of the Middle Ages. All right. What undermines and is kind of a, a solvent for the Middle Ages is uh, Occam's nominalism. If you can't have the platonic realist abstractions, yeah, if they just set theoretic terms, then this giant system building is a waste of time. It's just this chair, this chair, this chair, and that table, and that table, and this person. Okay? So William of Occam um, doesn't realize what he's doing. In other words, he's just trying to be logical. He's also fighting on a battle between, strangely enough, religious orders. William of Occam and the guys at Oxford are Franciscans. Dominicans, like Aquinas and Duns Scotus, um, are vying for control intellectually of the church and the West. Scotus was Franciscan. Scotus was, okay, right. And I'm thinking of Albertus Magnus, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So two things, or there are two events that pop up in the Renaissance that cause it to be discontinuous. Part of the reason why it's so hard to see the continuity. The first of the big discontinuities is called the Black Plague, 1348. Wipes out Europe for at least 50, 60, 80 years. That's why it looks like the Renaissance starts after that. It doesn't. Actually, it's earlier than that. The second big turn to the court is 1492. The world will never be the same after that. Okay? All right, so this is an age of physics, nature, soul, Athens, reason. It uh, is more, it's, it's not materialist, but it is more friendly to naturalism than the metaphysics of scholasticism. All right? And these, these, these time periods overlap. Um, we invent these categories to benefit historians, not because they're really there in the world, right? So the Reformation is certainly underway before Luther. Um, there's a big part of the Reformation that should be seen as starting about 1300. Here's why. Um, when they have the problem of the, th the two and then the three popes, right, it's the low point in the prestige of the papacy. But what also happens is that they have to solve this problem. What they do is they call the councils of Pisa and Constance. And they're authorized to fix what's wrong with the church. And they get us a new pope. They get rid of the antipopes. But when they're asked, well, what should we do about things left over from the Crusades, like, uh, say, the selling of indulgences or uh, buying church offices for younger sons, um, they decide that they're going to pass on it. They're not going to talk about that. Why? Why do you think? Because many of these guys bought their offices, and that's how they got there. So they have skin in the game. They're not touching that. There's a plausible argument to make that that's the cause of the Reformation. In other words, if you refuse to address standing abuses, sooner or later, that's going to cause serious problems. Now, before Luther, we had Wycliffe and Huss. Wycliffe is an Englishman, Huss is a Bohemian. Both of them burned at the stake. Mm -hmm. The problem is, um, that's a kind of Roman blood instrument response to genuine problems. And in the long run, it's not going to work. It's fascinating to me how 
frequently that did work because uh, I don't remember if it's one of them, but uh, before Luther came out, there was someone who spoke very much like Luther and- That's Hosmer. Okay, they, I mean, like they burned him at the stake and they got rid of his followers and it, you know, it's not- Well, they, no, they, they, they burned his followers on the ground getting rid of him is pretty good. That's true, but the, it's, it's interesting to me that while, sure, the church didn't fix the problems, the, the, the problems didn't blow up then, whereas when, when Luther comes out, they do blow up. That's right. But my argument is that it's only a matter of time mm -hmm. before one of those sparks is going to catch fire. Yeah. Yeah. Often I've heard the, the, the argument that the, the, the reason that this particular uh, spark caught fire was the printing press. Um, possibly. Okay. But, uh, and certainly that amplifies it, but it's not certain. In other words, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it, make it a, a determinism, but it certainly helps, makes it harder. Uh, so the Reformation has already started because of the fact that the church is generating this antithesis. Okay, the Enlightenment. People get sick and tired of the wars of the Reformation. With good reason, it's very understandable. And what they say is, let's talk about nature, and let's get all rational, right? Every time we start talking about Jesus, everybody gets killed, so let's leave that go, right? Over, oops, I think the romanticism in, that's strange, okay. Um, let's make it 1865. Um, all right, the elect, yeah. Uh, question about that, does that, is that, uh, is America's participation in romanticism the antebellum period? Yeah, uh, uh, for all of America, yes. Uh, Postbellum, the South stays with them. Okay. Which is why you get Mark Twain and the Uncle Remus stories, mm -hmm. Um, any novels about children are always romantic. <laughs> All right. Um, after that, we get an age of positivism, scientism. Uh, it's like a revival of the uh, Enlightenment in the sense that it's focused on uh, physics, nature, reason, Athens. And this is where we get uh, Maxwell's equations connecting electricity and magnetism. It's where we get literary realism in like Zola. It's when we're going to get the muckraking journalists uh, in the United States. It's going to get us, uh, let's see, uh, going to get us photography, which is going to fundamentally change visual art, right? Because once you can represent the world perfectly as it appears to the human eye, then there's no point in trying to create what has been what visual art has been doing since the Renaissance, right? Uh, we get new developments in logic, which is a very hard thing to do. The first big changes in logic since Aristotle. All right, that's when they're going to investigate things like Cantor's paradox. What about the set of all sets that don't contain themselves? It turns out that it's demonstrable. And we're going to get to Gödel later on in 1929. It's demonstrable that there exist true statements that are not demonstrable. Doesn't that suck? And kiss Descartes goodbye. You can kiss Platonic mathematics goodbye, because it's not, it ultimately can't work. And we know that in a purely logical way, which is what's so awful. <laughs> right. Were you going to say, Jude? Oh, I was going to ask what fingers that would be, but that would be Girdle and. Oh, that, Girdle, that, that would be 1929. Okay. Um, uh, so I'll put him in the age of anxiety. I see. Uh, but uh, well, I'm thinking about uh, Russell, I'm thinking about Frege, I'm thinking about Gauss. Would Wittgenstein then be a, would Wittgenstein be a transition to anxiety? Well, again, again, um, he starts out as one of those science worshiping uh, logical positives, but then he realizes that this is never going to work. 
and then becomes the great scourge of Muslim philosophers. <laughs> okay? And if you know the uh, poem by Yeats, uh, The Second Coming, if you don't, you should. All right? What comes after the age of anxiety? I don't know. Uh, I'm anxious about it. <laughs> All right. But we'll see what, what rough east this hour come around at last now slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Okay. So this is roughly the big picture. There's overlap here. You'll also notice that when things end, with the exception of the, of the Renaissance, uh, when these tendencies end, it's always because of some big political and military problem. The end of the Reformation is the end of the English Revolution. Problem of the Puritans won, but now what are we supposed to do? Right? The end of the Enlightenment, uh, I'm being charitable, as I so rarely am, uh, in uh, treating the Enlightenment as ending, it's conventionally treated as ending with the French Revolution, 1789, or maybe the Terror, 1792. But I'm going to place it in the Revolution of 1800 in the United States. It's the first transfer of power peacefully between people who think the other is the Antichrist. In other words, uh, John Adams thought Thomas Jefferson was the end of the world. Right? But he says, look, rather than have a civil war now, I'm going to give them the presidency. Okay? So that, in some ways, can be seen as the high point of the All right? All right. Romanticism. Um, it's impossible to be romantic after Gettysburg. In you know, 1865, um, it's not possible to feel all gushy and sentimental. Right? We've seen what it means for uh, death to become mechanized. All right? Positivism, the end of the First World War, yeah. Um, so, in the way that science, scientific revolutions sort of beget these eras and start them, is it always some sort of political war that ends them, or no? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, it could be anything. I can't predict the future. Um, for positivism, I think it was Versailles. Mm -hmm. We had a look at what science brought us, and what we got was mustard gas. All right? And the age of anxiety, I think it's already over. Um, I think it ended with 9-11, right? Because it's hard to get ironic about thousands of dead people. And it's really hard to sell the idea that the Twin Towers are composed of words and symbols that we socially construct. I mean, if that were the case, then I think it would have been wise to socially not construct their phone. But they fell anyway, all right? So whatever it is, we're, we came to the end of something there. Back at the, from the 1970s through 90s, um, postmodernism attracted some of the best minds in the West. Nowadays, the postmodern second generation, they're all intellectual second and third stringers. They don't realize that the zeitgeist is a bad <laughs> All right? And so, uh, as Cormac McCarthy said, he's one of my favorite guys, he's so perverse. Um, they're too dead to know, to know enough to lay down. Right. In other words, this is a dead man walking. Okay. This is the, the set of antimonies that the Western tradition revolves around. Right? We, we, we say, we're going to place all our faith in reason. Stop and think about that box so right. <laughs> But it turns out that reason can't solve everybody's problems. In other words, there are problems that reason can't touch. Pascal is right here. Um, the heart has reasons of which reason does nothing. On the other hand, if you want to abandon reason, those who have read Tertullian, the danger is, boh, boh. 
danger is uh, that by trying to be more than reasonable, you end up in practice being less. And that actually is true of 99% of people's attempts to be more than reasonable. All right, very quickly get scored again. The way I like to put it is that Kierkegaard has very few defenses against Nietzsche. He has no defenses against Nietzsche, but the problem is you're demanding logical defenses and he laughs at the idea. There's no defenses against Nietzsche, but on the other hand, there's no way Nietzsche can attack because there's nothing that Kierkegaard can do. What proposition does he so no, up in the first circle, Nietzsche and, and Kierkegaard are really good friends. <laughs> they disagree only about one thing, apart from they hang around and dislike everybody else. No, they're temperamentally identical. You, those of you who have not gotten this far in the reading, you will. Okay. So the dialectic, you know, Hegelian, swings back and forth. When we say that we're going to have an age of reason, it turns out that reason has been oversold. When we move to romanticism and get all gushy and sentimental, it turns out that sentimentality gets tiresome pretty quickly, right? Um, all of Charles Dickens' novels, which are romantic, right, are really the same novel. It's one gigantic panorama of England, and it's all about please, sir, I want some more. Poor, starving Oliver Twist. Who cannot feel bad? Well, the guy that cannot feel bad is Thomas Hardy. He's an English novelist who's read Dickens and is dying of a saccharine overdose. And instead, in Jude the Obscure, he has the child commit suicide. That is realism for you. He's not gushing. Okay. Um, Renaissance starts in Italy and in Spain and moves north. The Reconquista is actually the initial push in that direction. And what is characteristic of the Renaissance is they embrace the Greco-Roman tradition. They address, uh, they're Christians that are impressed with paganism, and they are dependent upon classical models. Think of Machiavelli and uh, Livy, the Roman historian, right? Think of uh, Petrarch, who actually writes in the early 1300s, and also the first uh, paintings that use perspective are also from the 1300s, right? Petrarch is a big fan of Sicily. Not an accident. So they're looking backward to recapture what has been lost. So this starts in the south and goes north. The, Re the Reformation starts in the north and goes south. It's a reaction to that. Luther goes to Rome and says, what will these statues of naked people have to do with Jesus? And the answer is nothing. Have any of you been to the Sistine Chapel? How many of you think you can pay attention to Mass? Uh, I don't believe a word of that. I mean, look, I spend, I spend time there, and, uh, you know, it's just overwhelming. And uh, it's not that they aren't great paintings. It's Luther says, what are great paintings doing in religious service? I don't have an especially good answer for that. He looks around and sees that a fair number of the, of the church hierarchy are homosexual or are openly keeping concubines. He says, what the hell's going on here? So there's something, he, he, he thinks that there's something wrong with Catholicism, but also something wrong with the Reformation, with the Renaissance, right? We concede too much of paganism. Uh, he's an excellent example of trying to be more than reasonable and you end up less. There we go. That's the problem, of course. Um, the, there, there are many difficulties with Luther, but one of the most important is the fact that he's messianic. 
Right? He goes and checks out the Bible and figures out what parts really belong there. <laughs> so what, for 1,200 years, nobody's been reading the Bible, right? Until you came along? How do you do that? Don't ask, don't tell. All right? uh, that's what we're going to get here. Now, the Enlightenment is going to try to walk away from this. Right? It says, look, we're going to place our faith in reason alone. We're going to stop arguing about theology. We're going to start to do natural science. Okay, this is not perfect, but it's an enormous success. All right? Now, eventually, people get tired of constant appeals to rationality. And so they decide on something else. They decide, let's have feelings. Let's have emotions. Uh, let's have beautiful art. Art really thrives in the romantics. Beethoven is a great romantic musician, and Beethoven's nice, sounds like God Almighty. Right? Uh, think of uh, Delacroix, Lady Liberty, bare-breasted on the barricades, leading the people forward on the, with the tricolor. That is, it has motion, it has action, it has feeling. That's what makes romanticism. Uh, novels flourish. So we get Jane Austen, right? The Napoleonic Wars are happening, but you never, she never mentions them because people are getting married, right? And because Elizabeth Barrett is an interesting young woman. Okay. The fact that the world's aflame, it doesn't really matter where you're living. Um, is Mary Shelley the end, like late romanticism? That would be a good example of ultra-romanticism. Okay. Also her, her husband, Shelley. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, Keats. And uh, especially William Blake. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, the second generation of romanticism, it kind of goes sour. That's when we get things like Melville and Moby Dick. Right? which is about a guy with lots of feelings and passion. He's completely bonkers. And he's chasing a whale across the world because the conflict between them is personal. Okay. Uh, here we have madness uh, attached to sentiment and reason. Or rather, sentiment and feeling. Uh, romanticism is actually derived from the Reformation in the same way that the Enlightenment is derived from the Renaissance. Those of you who have read Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther, it's a conversion experience. It's just that it's pseudo-secular. That's right. Lotha is Jesus. Yep. How is the Enlightenment derived from the Renaissance? Oh, because of the, the emphasis on reason and the rejection, or not rejection, but uh, the subordination of religious questions. All right. Okay. So the Reformation gets pseudo uh, Secularized in Romanticism, and then it's just going to become uh, what I would call ultra-Romanticism, or uh, Romanticism squared in the 20th century. Right? Now, we have this, re this restart of science, this re-emphasis on science at the end of the 19th century. That lasts until Versailles. All right? The age of anxiety, I would be glad to say the great Profits of that are Nietzsche and Freud. Right? Um, you may think that you know what you're doing and why, but Freud knows that you're mistaken. Instead, you're really being driven by sexual and aggressive impulses that you neither understand nor control. He is the great uh, ventriloquist for Dionysus. Right? Okay, on uh, the age of anxiety, we lose all moral. 
As Nietzsche says in section 125 of the gay science, we're falling in all directions at once. There's no up, there's no down. Or at least chaos. That's right. Okay. Uh, what we get here is an age of world war, the world's most destructive and uh, deadly wars happen. You think it's an accident when people have given up on the idea of reason? Hey. Um, either you reason things out in politics or you fight them out. Those are your choices. If you give up on the idea that you can reason about it, there's only one thing left. That's one of the worst things about contemporary American politics. Yeah. It makes Hitler into a, a pseudo-romantic figure. Of course he is. That's exactly what he is. Uh, he embraces imaginary ideologies about race. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's also interesting, too, because it's very positivist and enlightenment insofar as it's very scientific. Um, it uses um, rationality and science for ultimately irrational well, things. Yes, but I, I think, I guess what I'm saying is that I think the Nazis would say that they're very reasonable. They're well, the ones they have these answers. Right, but I'm not sure that, for example, giant uh, uh, political rallies, mm -hmm. right, where we have giant swastikas and everybody worships the great man. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a hard sell to convince me that that's reasonable, right? What that is is the hysteria of crowds, mm -hmm. right? This great man in politics is deeply romantic. Hitler, Stalin, right? I guess the Wilson, FDR, yeah. Uh, Romanticism's fascination and fixation upon nature is difficult to see in Nazism insofar as rather than it being a fixation on like nature, it's a fixation on what men naturally ought to be, and that's what we are in the Aryan race. Well, what men naturally can be. Um, he uh, argued, well, his favorite philosopher was Nietzsche, but uh, Hitler argued that what he was going to do was going to be something like the ancient Spartans and the Helots. Mm -hmm. That was his model. It makes perfectly good sense if you think about it, right? Now remember that Nietzsche would have had nothing but contempt for Hitler, because he has nothing but contempt for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but Hitler really liked him. Go figure. Okay. I yep. I guess what I'm trying to argue for is that in the Nazi methods, you can see, I think of I think you can see more Athens than Jerusalem. Absolutely. Um in the 20th century, we get a strange melange of both, but irrationality is the senior part. So um, the Nazis, but also the fascists too, and the communists, um, all used uh, rational means for irrational ends. Because all of these are contemporary mythologies, they're pseudo-religions, okay? When you stop worshiping God, or if you get rid of God, um, whatever it is that's come second gets a promotion. And now it's laughable because it's a little bit like uh, watching children get dressed up in their parents' clothing. Uh, but this is the deification of man routine. We've seen plenty of times before. Nothing new about this. It goes all the way back to Prometheus. Okay. Let's see what we got here, though. The 1300s, we're looking at Occam and Petrarch. All right. And uh, they're going to help uh, undermine the scholastic synthesis. We're going in a new direction here. The plague, 1348, is a turning of the corner, which is, makes it easy to fail to see the fact this is happening early. Then we get Chaucer and Boccaccio and the other uh, writers of the vernacular, like Dante's uh, earlier. But then we get 1492, yeah. 
How Petrarch? How Petrarch? Um, he writes the Petrarchan sonnets, and he also climbs Mount Ventoux to get his view of things. And uh, he has that, uh, when he writes the Secretum, and he talks about the dark night of the soul, he talks about a nightmare he had where an angel came to him and said, Look, you claim to be a Christian, but in fact, you worship Cicero. Which is not far wrong. <laughs> All right. From there, we get Machiavelli, which is the human perspective on politics. No more metaphysics. All right. We get extraordinary art. All right. And taking up the tail end of it, Copernicus publishes his book in 1453, and then Galileo finishes it out. Yep. The uh, geocentrism of the universe, I suppose, then was God's view of the. It, it, the it was the theological account of physics. <laughs> because what God is looking at, He's not looking at Jupiter; He's looking at Earth. That's right. Sun. And that's why Gothic cathedrals are shaped like crosses because God can see them. Nobody else can. <laughs> so we have the God's eye view of everything. The Reformation, I think, it's ultimately caused by a failure of conciliarism. In other words, we dropped the ball. And it's not until the Council of Trent, uh, 1547, that they're going to address these problems. But 200 years, or actually 250 years, is not a timely response to these problems. And that's something that really worries me. Right? Um, the church is very slow to respond to crises. Uh, it was only at the, towards the end of the 20th century that uh, they made their peace with Galileo. And it's kind of an anticlimax 400 years later, right? The time to do it is when this is a live problem. All right. Uh, finishing up the Reformation, um, I'd be inclined to say that Erasmus is both a Christian humanist, and that says he's part of the uh, Renaissance, but he's also um, a conservative in the Reformation. It says, he's, it says he says, look, um, Luther is right that there are a lot of messed up things in the church. But I don't want to start a schism or a civil or a war, which is actually the very prudent thing to do. I really like Erasmus. He's a, a reasonable and humane person in an age of fanaticism. Yeah. Uh, I'm in an Erasmus class currently, and it's very fascinating how his enemies of the day, like the people that hated him most, really strike the reader as medievals. Yeah, they all did. I mean, that's, what, that, that's exactly right. You're reading those sources correctly. Um, we get Milton, all right, and Paradise Lost is one of the great apologias for Protestantism, all right, and of course Pascal, even though he's in the Enlightenment and a scientist, he in some ways is a blast from the past, saying forget all the science stuff, you guys got to get back to God. A lot of truth in that too. All right, in the Enlightenment, we move from God to nature, and at the same time that Milton is writing Paradise Lost, Hobbes is writing the Leviathan. Okay. Descartes gives us a new conception of the self as a kind of atom of consciousness. Uh, Locke is going to give us a new political theory, social contractarianism derived from Hobbes. Uh, we're going to get Hume and Pierce's skepticism. And then the high point of Enlightenment science is Newton. Three laws of motion, wrap it up. His contemporary said there's no other major discovery you can discover about yeah, well, um, wouldn't it work? <laughs> um, Bach is, in my view, any of you know the Brandenburg concertos? Okay. Sounds like a Newtonian clock. Mm -hmm. Everything is perfect.
perfectly balanced with everything else. Nothing is left over, nothing is too much. I mean, it sounds, to me it sounds like it was designed by God. I mean, you can look at it, wow, it's all perfectly coherent and symmetrical. It's the aesthetics of symmetry in a big way. And at the end of the uh, Enlightenment and the beginning of Romanticism, Germany joins the Enlightenment very late. The Enlightenment is primarily created by Frenchmen and Englishmen. The reason why the Germans don't have much to do with it is because they're still recovering from the wars of the Reformation. So they're about 100 years lag behind. Which is why Goethe, one of the great romantics, is very late in the Romantic period. He's a contemporary of Kant. How can one culture hold on to both Kant and Goethe? That's actually a pretty amazing thing to do. But if for the Germans, they're late to the to the romantic to romanticism, uh, rather they're late to the Enlightenment, but early to romanticism. Okay. Uh, think of the paintings of David if you want Enlightenment paintings. They all look like marble statues, striking a pose, looking very worthy and Roman and dignified. Um, there's no motion, there's no emotion, there's nothing going on, and then you'll find in the title exactly what element of classical antiquity is represented. All right? Compare Enlightenment painting with David and Romantic painting with Delacroix. All right? Exactly the opposite, being and becoming. All right. Romanticism is a search for the soul your interior subjectivity becomes hugely important. This is part of the pseudo-religious element of it. Your soul and love are its main focuses, but it's not love of God, it's love of nature or love of your beloved. Alright? So, uh, think of William Blake. Right, one of the great early romantics, both a, both a painter and a poet, which is actually quite unusual. He's also bombers. <laughs> if you have read his stuff and read his background, he believes he's getting information from the spirit world. He drew the source of it. It looks like a giant flea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he talks about, I can't remember where, but he talks about how when everyone awakens their poetic imagination and writes poetry, that's when Jesus I can believe he would think that. Right? That would make perfect sense. Although, uh, how uh, our poetry summons Jesus up? <laughs> that was perfectly vague on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Blake was really wonderful. In other words, you're not going to read better romantic poetry. Maybe Keats, who's also a really great poet. And then the second generation of romanticism, things go awry. Crazy Captain Ahab. Has a personal vendetta against a whale. Okay. And uh, we're also going to see things like Thoreau. What a poser Thoreau is. I mean, there was a time in my life when I found Walden really interesting and inspiring. Now, like, like existentialist novels, I can barely stand. Right? He uh, goes to live alone deliberately outside of society. He's almost two miles from his mom's house. <laughs> right? So he's in a, a cabin by a pond, and he can almost call out to his family. 
right? He, he brings his laundry home. Right? This is our guy who's running it. Right? He's going to encounter the essential things. All right. But uh, apart from gazing at his navel a great deal, um, I'm not sure what we're supposed to take away from him. He is to a great extent, like many romantics, intellectually invertebrate. Yeah. Um, America, this has made me think of Jack London, and Jack London went traveling around for many Late 19th century realism, Jack London, there you go. Um, it, it, it's just funny to me that Henry David Thoreau is trying to do something that. You know, Jack London really did? Yeah. Okay. That's believable enough. Um, he's a, a living room philosopher. Mm-hmm. I won't admit it. Uh, after romanticism, we get positivism, we're going to get realism, uh, we're going to get an increasing degree of abstraction in painting. Think of Cezanne, the way he turns landscapes into these rough geometric shapes. Right? And if you want to read one of the great novels of the age, sadly we like to try Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. It's a great discussion of nihilism. All right. Yeah. Um, are characters like Lenin and Stalin an answer to that nihilism, or are they? No. What, they, of what, what Lenin is is uh, the Russians getting positivistic. Okay. They say, forget Dostoevsky and all this worrying about your soul. Now I'm going to write what is to be done, and we're going to change the world. All right. Stalin is an extrapolation from Lenin, but he is. Um, part of a cult of personality, which is not very rational. Right? We have to worship the great man. I mean, things got so bad in Stalin's Russia that when he went to the opera or the theater, they actually had to have a system of lights. I'm not making this up. Because when he went there, when he appeared in his box, everyone would clap. But everyone was afraid of being the first person to stop. So they had to clap and clap and clap and clap and, clap and no one would stop. So eventually they had a system of lights where green you're supposed to clap, yellow you're supposed to get ready to, to stop clapping, and then with red, we all stop clapping at the same time so Stalin doesn't kill us. This is political irrationalism. In the cult of the great man. Hitler ties into that too. Right? Okay. The age of anxiety. Now, you asked about changes in science. Um, the, Rena- uh, the Renaissance begins the rise of modern natural science, and it's completed, well, it's largely completed in the Enlightenment. The last installment is Darwin's Origin of Species here, 1857. Okay. The high point is here with Newton. Okay. Now, at the end of positivism, the beginning of the age of anxiety, around 1900, we're starting to get new breakthroughs in science. And this is what I call science 4.0. This is contemporary science. This is relativity, and this is quantum mechanics. The old deterministic certainty that we got from Isaac Newton starts to break down. It turns out that electrons are not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not being what they're supposed to be. And that means that we now have limits on Newtonian mechanics. They have to find a new way of accounting for this and they give up on the idea of causal necessity. And instead, um, the quantum uh, 
uh, mechanics guys like Bohr um, come up with probabilistic functions, statistical possibilities of where an electron is going to be. It turns out, you know, uh, this will be an anxiety, uh, a Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you know how that works? Okay, here's the deal. We're trying to figure out what a photon is doing. Okay, photons move really fast and they spin and they move in a direction they have whatever qualities physicists do. Okay, um, here's the problem. In order to observe a photon, well, you have to see it. Listening for photons is a hard business. <laughs> Looking for them is actually also a hard business due to the fact that looking at things involves bouncing photons off them and having them hit the cones and rods in your eyes get turned into electrical impulses, which you turn into an idea. Okay, here's the problem. When you have a photon moving like that, any words? I think you mean an electron. Electron, right. When you have an electron moving that way, the problem with finding the electron is that when you bounce a photon off it, it's like having a ping pong ball moving and then trying to find it by bouncing a basketball off. Well, the problem is when the basketball hits it, it'll tell you where the, where the electron is, but it's changed where the electron is going and what the electron is doing. So now we've we got to the very limits of empiricism because we've gotten to the point where watching something actually changes it. <laughs> you can see why this is the age of anxiety. My God, what have we done? I can understand Schrodinger much better. That's exactly right. When you only have probabilistic functions, well, it's really a weird world we enter into that has nothing to do with our gross macroscopic experience. Um, I know it sounds strange, and what we've seen here is what might be called by Weber the demagicking of society and room. I'm tempted to describe quantum mechanics as mathematizing magic. I mean, things pop into existence and then stop existing and start existing a little bit later somewhere else. Quantum entanglement, have any of you studied that? Two particles that could be separated by an infinite amount of space. The, a change in the condition of one, if you find the way one is spinning, that will determine the changes undergoing the spin of the other. Um, and this is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. How exactly does this particle do whatever it does to the thing on the other side of the universe? And also it does it instantaneously. Because then, I mean, this this isn't even magic. This is insane. And yet, that is what I'm best able to do. In the same way that the like the sort of perspective of thinking went from God down to man, and then transitioned from man to nature, is this now like getting even smaller than man, and we're looking like from atoms out? Because um, like characterize it the way you want. What we've gotten, what we've done, is extended this scientific method based upon human empiricism, mm -hmm. and we take it as far as it's gone. Mm -hmm. Well, how are we going to have physics in the future um, if it pertains to things that you can't see, that you can't make any observation? Of? Hmm. That's what's the problem with string theory. It's really interesting mathematics. No one knows if it tells you anything <laughs> about the world. I mean, it could be the Kabbalah, for all you know. It may have nothing to do with the world at all, but the math is really nice. The problem is, there's no guarantee that nature is interested in elegant mathematics. As Einstein said, elegance is for cameras. Okay. Age your anxiety produces some amazing art. As you know, books have become obsolete. We live in the age of the image. Video takes over. Um, 
Here we're going to get clever fellows like Oscar Wilde, a nihilist who says, well, let's at least stay laughing. All right. Joyce, who finds himself all that interesting, he's a real neat chain artistic hero. Those of you who know the painting of Chagall, I really like it, but it's like it happening in a dream. Uh, Thomas Mann, you haven't read him yet, but you should. That would completely blow you. Have you looked at that already? Or that would completely blow your mind. Faulkner, and if I had to choose one author uh, for the age of anxiety, I would say Kafka. Because he's the one who realized that we're not the crown of creation, that we're bugs. Much of 20th century culture has been created by people who think that they're bugs. Yeah. Um, most of what I've heard you say about people in the age of anxiety is that you might as well just read Kierkegaard or Nietzsche because they're better. Is yeah, yeah. Kafka one of the few? Kafka's, I mean, he's an entertaining read. I mean, one, I mean, it's a great opening line. One day, Gregor Samson woke up and realized he was a cockroach. <laughs> I mean, no background, no explanation, just, I'm a cockroach. This is the demagogy of human nature. Also notice how when we go from Descartes and his psychology, which is Enlightenment psychology, to the Freudian psychology, what we're going to do is take the atom of consciousness, which is Descartes' ego, all right, and we're going to split it up, like splitting the atom. And it's going to, like splitting the atom, it's going to generate unexpected epistemological problems. Yeah. Do you think that like gender theory today kind of stems from like Kafka's idea of like... No, gender theory stems from uh, um, in, from resentment and anger, mm -hmm. all right, and uh, a desire to abolish external reality. That's what all social constructivism is, all right. Um, the idea is that if everyone agrees that a man in a dress is a woman, then he's a woman. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of attached to external reality, and it appears to me that a man in a dress is a man. And a man in a dress that says he's a man is also a man. And if lots of SJWs uh, get excited about that, I think he's still a man. Um, what they're demanding is that their desires be realized, regardless of whether it's consistent with the empirical facts of the world. Um, that's what social constructivism is. It's an attempt to say that everything is subjective. What it is, think about it this way. Remember the problem of solipsism we had with Descartes, how do you know there are other minds? What it is is solipsism on the collective level. Everything that exists, exists in the social world. If you change the social world, you change existence. This is essentially those who read 1984. What O'Brien says, how much is two and two wisdom? I say it's five. Everybody else says it's five. I'm going to torture you until you say it's five. You can also trace gender theory to Derrida. To what? Derrida. Derrida is laid on the, uh, on the game, right? Um, there were some real first-rate skeptics, like Derrida or Foucault, um, at the end of the 20th century that embraced this new postmodern deconstruction. Unfortunately, there's no construction that came with it. They never had an affirmative program. And now, um, there are still postmodernists, but they are all second and third strings. They don't even realize that the zeitgeist is left. Right? Like Howard McCarthy says, right, they're too dead to know enough to lay down. All right? But first-rate thinkers aren't bothered with that anymore. I think that both Como and the age of anxiety ended with the uh, Twin Towers. What we're in now, I don't know. But I do know that postmodernism made the argument that it's impossible to sustain what they called uh, meta-discourses, totalizing meta-discourses, and there's no general explanation of things. But what world historians are doing now is writing totalizing meta-discourses. 
and somehow this is worth thinking about. So something new is happening. I don't know what it is. Your generation may well determine what it is. Yeah. The, the, the constant destruction of meta-narratives created a, just a, a need, especially among young people, for some sort of meta-narrative. And I think that's the, what's giving us uh, thinkers like uh, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. There. Um, also Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well said. Okay, and it comes in all flavors, yeah. right? Everybody needs something to believe in, and the claim to eliminate belief in favor of some pure rationality is a bluff. Um, the claim to get beyond moral obligation is a bluff too. Nobody does because nobody can. Yeah. It's interesting that I remember in your class about um, the Barkai, of how he's telling the Greeks like. Athens is dead, and like you know, the war is coming to an end. Um, like the end of anxiety is very clearly. I think you can see it as possibly the Bacchae, and you know, it, it doesn't it look very be. good past that. This could be the end of the West. Yeah, it's possible. Um, I, I won't go too much further in this, but this is the big picture. In other words, it's like a sine curve up and down, up and down, and the sine curve gets bigger over time. The amplitude increases. All right. That's roughly the structure of the last 700 years. Now, if I could have a few minutes of your attention, I'd like to show you something I figured out, oh, I don't know, and that's about 25, so it's been about 35 or 37 years ago. Um, here's how political party systems work. All of them. Okay. Now, I worked this out when I was in graduate school and never published it because I just wasn't interested. I gave it to a whole bunch of students and said, look, we'll get to write a doctoral dissertation. You know, you'll do well, but none of them have done it too. If any of you want it, knock yourself out. I have no use for it. All I, want, I, all I wanted to know was the answer. Right? You know, passing around. I've done it with some of my students. But here's the deal. Early enlightenment. They have come to the idea that governments are legitimate because of the consent of the government. Okay? That's, that's the movement from the great chain of being top down to the social contract bottom up. Okay. During the English Revolution, they get rid of monarchy, which is the highest point of the political agenda of the Enlightenment. Replace monarchy with representative government. Now, this is the early Enlightenment, and Enlightenment political theory hasn't been fully worked out yet. They haven't thought it through, okay? Now, when Cromwell dies, they say, damn, we have a, we have a House of Lords, we have a House of Commons, and we've established parliamentary supremacy. Now what are we going to do? And nobody knows, because the enlightened political theory hasn't been worked out yet. So they said, you know what we should do? We should get ourselves a king. Why don't we call the son of the, Latin, the king we just beheaded? See if he wants to come back, and he does. Now why are they doing this? It's because they have no recourse. The enlightened political theory hasn't been worked out yet. So they drop back, they drop back to an earlier political theory. Aristotle, the one, the few, and the many. The many is the House of Commons. The few is the House of Lords. But they need that one. They gotta have one. Why? Well, because how could you not have a one? The Enlightenment political theory hasn't been worked out yet. Rousseau hasn't written yet. Locke hasn't written yet. Yeah. Even in America, Hamilton That's basically exactly wanted right. a, basically wanted a king in the presidency. I'm coming to that. You are exactly right. But even better than that, it's going to turn out that. The American Revolution is derived from the English Revolution, which is why we have white capitalism. 
all the American revolutionaries uh, read Milton. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating how difficult it is to mark sometimes because there are a bunch of, I mean, like to use his language, they're people who are part of the they're part of the proletariat, but they still think like bourgeoisie. So like, even though they're trying to be early Enlightenment political thinkers, they are so attached to their old ideas that they can't get rid of them. Well, um, it's hard to be enough of a genius to create Enlightenment political theory on your own, particularly this week. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cromwell's dead, now what are we gonna do? Let's go get a king, we need a one, a few, and a many. So they've established parliamentary supremacy and consent of the government, that's the Enlightenment part. But they're still an amphibian, they haven't pulled themselves out of the water yet. So they have a one, a few, and a many, okay. That leads to bicameral le legislatures. The reason why is that the one does not need a house in which to meet with himself. But the few and the many do. So you get, you know. Can you just define bicameral briefly? Yeah, bicameral, two houses. Okay, so bicameralism means that you're gonna represent the people and you're gonna re represent someone or something else. In the case of England, it's the landed aristocracy. In the case of the United States, it's the states. Okay, now, let's let the Enlightenment go on a little further. All right, the American Revolution is gonna be based upon the English tradition. They all, most of them only read English. What do you expect them to do? So of course, they end up with a bicameral system. This looks good to us, all right? We're, we're modeling ourselves on England, all right? Now let's look at the French Revolution, the French tradition. That's a late Enlightenment. And here they have thought out what enlightened politics is. And what they've thought out is that the one needs to be killed. And the many also need to be killed. All right, which is what they do. They kill off the aristocrats, and they destroy the church as far as they can, and they kill the king and his family. So did you mean to say that they need to get rid of the one and the few? They got rid of the one and the few. Oh. In the French systems today, like the one that idea kind of still remains because like their president and they're they're such a strong leader in their country now. Like they continue that kind of. Um, it always with very I mean it's always based upon um, the French uh, National Assembly. Yeah. In other words, it's the party that has the most power that's going to generate the president. Mm -hmm. All right. So now think about how this is going to work. Right. The French Revolution, since we're going to get rid of the one of the few, only represents the many. And you don't need a two-house two assembly for that. You just have everybody get together and decide what they want to do. Okay. Now, um, I had this argument, I guess it was in the 1990s. Do you know who uh, Ariana Huffington is? She's the lady behind the Huffington Post and stuff like that. Right. She's a complete idiot. All right. She's a talking head because no jack. And I was at a, a conference of some kind, and uh, she got up and made a speech about why we need a third party. And I said, ma'am, um, I worked this problem out 20 years ago, and uh, that's completely impossible. And she didn't understand, she just kept on chattering away. Are you impervious to thinking? This is not possible, let me explain why. No, she didn't, she wanted to talk about her own hope for a political party that would nominate her. Um, she's truly insane. But um, I made the argument to a bunch of other people that were sitting in the audience and said, let's go back and have a drink. And I said, get me a whiteboard and I'll show you over there. Okay, um, this got back to Washington and actually um, I was invited to the Supreme Court 
um, to talk to Justice Kennedy. Now, it's a funny thing. I was at Princeton at the time. And because I'm an absent-minded professor, I don't uh, answer my voicemail. So I actually left him hanging for about a month because I just didn't pick up my voicemail. I wasn't interested. And then I called him. And putting a, call, a phone call into a uh, Supreme Court justice is like trying to call a vote. <laughs> the number of layers between you and him are just astonishing. But um, yeah, you know, I called him, and the secretary got the secretary got the secretary. He called me back. He said, look, let's talk about this. I went down, we talked about it. I said, look, I haven't written it up, so you can't read it, but I haven't talked to you about it. So we did. Here's what's going on, all right? Let's add change or time to these bicameral and unicameral systems. And then let's find out what happens. Why is it that unicameral systems, like we have in, say, Israel or France, lead to very wide spectrum, spectrum of ideology. They have real communists there, real anarchists, real fascists there. There's a very wide spectrum of thought. When, you, when Europeans come to America, they say, look, um, there's no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. You're all arguing about who gets control of the 50-yard line. All right? you, I mean, there really aren't any fascists. that haven't been in America. And there really haven't been any serious communist movements either. Why? I know why. This is, uh, cameralism is the answer. Let me show you how that works. Okay. We've been asking the wrong question in political science. The question everybody asks is, how do you legislate? You learn that in civics class, right? How a bill becomes law. Okay, but that's the wrong question historically. The right question is, how do you obstruct legislation? In other words, how do you stop legislation from happening? Strangely enough, that's even more important than legislation. Now, let's stop and think about some possible cases. This will make it clear to you, okay? Why is it that no third party has ever uh, won in America? The only exception to the rule is the Populist Party at the end of the 19th century, and they only won by destroying the Democratic Party and then you had a two-party system again. Why is it that all bicameral legislatures generate two-party systems? And why is it that all unicameral legislatures generate multi-party coalitional systems? Two-party systems all focus the conflict between the parties on the 50-yard line. So the spectrum of ideology is really narrow. All right? On the other hand, when you have a multi-party coalitional system in a unicameral assembly, you get a real right and a real left. You get some real crazy stuff. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. This, so the, what you're talking about with the result of the unicameral, unicameral system where there is a like there is a pluralism of thought. Yep. That isn't that what the American founders wanted to fight against in as much as that would mean that a small group of people, because there's so many thoughts, would at some point gain power and suppress all the rest of them? The, the American uh, founders, uh, like the ancient historians, thought that faction was always bad. That's why they don't mention or expect to exist political parties. There's no such thing in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. right? But it turns out they're absolutely essential. You can't organize a legislature without political party mechanisms. Mm -hmm. right? So they come in whether they like them or not. Mm -hmm. All right. um, this, um, the, the founders were not adverse to a variety of opinions, provided they didn't become seditious. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's think about bicameralism and unicameralism. Okay? All right. Bicameralism is like buying a Volvo. Right? It is nearly impossible to kill yourself in a Volvo. Right? You can drive drunk, you can smash it into a tree, and you walk away from it. A unicameral system 
is like a Ferrari. Much more fun to drive, much more, much more responsive, and will get you killed almost immediately. In other words, you can expect breakdowns in human capital systems by driving a Ferrari. And yeah, you get killed all the time. Yeah. So in France, they have lots of revolutions, and in Israel, they have militarized their entire populace so that they don't have to worry about that. It's a unicameral assembly of Israel, too, and that's why. Yeah. Doesn't France have this, the Senate, though, too, and the National Assembly? But it's, but it's almost uh, powerless. Okay, right. And this actually also happens, strangely enough, in England. In 1912, they essentially pull the rug out from under the House of Lords right. and get rid of it. When they go from a bicameral 19th century system mm -hmm. to a unicameral 20th century system, they go from Whigs and Tories to a spectrum of political lines mm -hmm. and a spectrum of political opinion. Yeah. So, so Great Britain, since the House of Lords is essentially like has no control, so it's just the um, House of Commons left that basically controls everything. That's right. right. Okay. So it added time in. Let's add change. It turns out that the ancient philosophers are wrong. It is possible to know things have changed. F equals M A. Get used to it. Okay. Imagine now in a unicameral assembly, you have a split, 90 10. How's that going to work out? The 10 lose, the 90 win. Solve. Okay. In a bicameral assembly, you have a Senate and a House, and it's split 90 10. How's that going to work out? The 10 still lose, because even if they're all in one of the houses, it's just not going to be enough. So it's easy to legislate with that kind of a split. Now let's go to something worse, right? something really controversial, something gets people all excited. Fill in your blank. The abortion, it could be uh, uh, socialism, it could be whatever. You want. 5149. In a unicameral assembly, what happens? You legislate. Right. And the 49 can go take a hike because you're not getting jacked. You're not, not only you're not getting any laws, you're not getting any uh, political appointments, you're not getting any lucrative government contracts, you're not going to get a whole bunch of stuff. Right? In other words, all we need is an extra 1% and we're in charge. All right. Lends itself to what some people call tyranny of the majority. Okay, well, now a 5149 split in a bicameral assembly. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. That's exactly right. Because assuming that one house and the other house represent different constituencies, as they inevitably do, if they don't, you might as well just merge them. All right? Well, so if they represent different constituencies, the chance that both of the houses are going to be identically 5149 are minuscule. It's almost impossible. So what that means is, is that 5149, you can obstruct legislation in a, in a bicameral assembly. That's why American social policy is always a generation or two behind the Europeans, because it responds to the demands of the people much more effectively, because it's, you can legislate with 51%. That's what makes a sports car. That's what makes it maneuverable. You know? Isn't it Alexis de Tocqueville's point that though in America it's a 5149 split where nothing happens because it's, it's a two-party system, mm -hmm. that Ultimately, the majority is still going, like, the 51 will win. It will just take a lot longer. Well, if it takes a lot longer, they may dissipate. They may change their mind. Okay. Okay, you don't know. Uh, delay is transformation. Because, mm -hmm. okay. I mean, like, the, what he talks about so much is that, like, the, the majority is, you know, like, in a population, the majority is mediocre at best. Mm -hmm. And so taste becomes unrefined and irrelevant as opposed to like, at least what the few thought it would be. That's right. And then everyone wants to be comfortable, and so like everyone begins to think what the majority thinks, because that's what the comfortable thing to do 
don't know, I mean, remember, he's writing in the 1840s. By the time we get to the 1880s, we have the populist movement that breaks up the two parties. Okay. Right. But that only, re when, it, when uh, the Democratic Party dies and the populist party takes it over, we go back to a two-party system. So there's something systemic that's forcing us in the direction of two parties. And there's something systemic in unicameralism that forces us to multi-party coalitional systems. Okay. Now, I want to, let's get to the nightmare case, okay? 49-49-2. Now, the two is a new political party. I call them the friends of the moon. Why? Because they like the moon. Moon is their favorite thing. They want lunar holidays, they want lunar postage stamp, they want peace treaty with the moon. The point is that it doesn't matter what this small party wants or whether it makes sense or not. If they want a peace treaty with the moon, by God, we'll give it to them. Because in a unicameral assembly, we have to have those two. So now, what, are, what happens? We get a bidding war between party A and party B oh, for control of party C. Mm -hmm. And what are they gonna offer this 2%? 3%, 4%, 5% of government contracts, lunar holidays, whatever crazy shit you want, you can have it, just sign with us. Okay, they keep on bidding up until it becomes ridiculous. We're offering them 10, 12, 15% for their two votes, right? And then, eventually, one party throws in the the talent says, I'm shocked, shocked at the deal-making that's going on here. The two part percent has decided to stop it, decided with the other guys. This is deep in cover. How can anyone do that? Both of them. Okay. But somebody's going to win. Because if they come to come to a and say, look, you're 2%. You don't deserve 15% of government contracts. You don't deserve your own special newspaper dedicated to the moon. I think this is just crazy, but it doesn't matter. Crazy or sane, we're going to give them what they want. Now, yep. This is the origin of Brexit. What? This is the origin of Brexit. Yes. Okay, now let us look at a bicameral assembly. 49 49 2. Okay. Since the 49, either of them can obstruct legislation, that means that there's no bonus by creating a coalition between the two and the 49. And what that means is that instead of getting 10 or 15%, the 2% gets zero because they just split it up between the two big parties. And that means instead of getting your own newspaper and your own political party and your own uh, uh, position in the government, you're going to get absolutely nothing. This is why all the third parties in America have always withered on the vine. Because you've got to remember, once the Friends of the Moon get their 12 to 15% of government contracts, all the opportunism, there's never any shortage of them, are going to become lunar. So now we have a really, now we've got from 2 to 8%. Now we're really going to be in the driver's seat. We're going to want even more. But a problem emerges. In the bicameral assembly, the 2% die. And then 30, 40 years from now, we get another uh, minor party that'll die too. I mean, think of how many political parties have died in America. The two party system keeps reasserting itself. And the reason why is because you can't legislate with 51%. Mm -hmm. In other words, you need about 60-40 before you can be sure of legislating. By then, it's too dangerous to threaten the majority because it means that the majority is 50% bigger than you are. That's why bicameral assemblies do not generate civil wars, unicameral assemblies. Suppose the 51 represents the people and the 49 represents the uh, military officer you have a good chance of starting a civil war. No? So then, would the American Civil War be a, like a... The American Civil War is the second American Revolution. 
On the other hand, we're on a second American Republic. When, when, so when nothing happens, the 49 get angry and... They get angry, but um, the problem is that they're not 49, they're down to about 42, 43. And they, they read the writing on the wall. All the immigration is going to the north, and the uh, country's being open to the north. And what that means is sooner or later we're going to be abolished. So now is the time to, to move, because we're never going to be any stronger than we are in 1860. So America's had two revolutions. Why? Because it's a Volvo. It's really, I mean, very few countries last for that length of time with a democratic regime. On the other hand, the French, are they on the fifth republic now or the sixth? Okay. Let me tell you, here's why. Unitarian assemblies are intrinsically unstable. Uh, I'm laughing thinking about the, 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 scene, the, the famous painting of the National Assembly with the, the bishops and the, the people shaking hands, forming this united whole that is immediately going to self-destruct. Right. Exactly right. Um, so the point then is, unicameral assemblies are much more responsive to the will of the people. They're also much more fragile and much more inclined to explode. And something like a tricameral assembly wouldn't quite that just make sense. Make sense because can't I mean, split it up. Yeah, I mean, we have the people, and we have something else, we have something else, and something else. Uh, that ends up really not being an assembly at all. No one's going to ever legislate that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your choices are one and two. But now, here's what happens: bicameral assemblies generate two-party systems. That's why 18th and 19th century England is a two-party system between the Whigs and the Tories. They get rid of the second part of the government of the legislature, and now they have a multi-party coalition system with real communists and real fascists. That's why. So in other words, the camera, the, the number of houses, determines the structure of political parties. The structure of political parties determines the content of political ideology. So what that means is, is that all two-party two systems come from bicameral assemblies. All multi-party coalitional systems with a wide spectrum of ideas come from unicameral assemblies. The adventure of the unicameral assembly is responsive to the will of the people. The disadventure of the unicameral assembly is it's responsible to the wills of the people. Right? A, a bicameral assembly is much more conservative, much more slow to move. So when Europeans come to America and say, what are you fighting about? We're fighting about who wins. Well, what's your ideology? We don't have an ideology. Both the Republicans and the Democrats are a conglomerate of all kinds of interest groups. They don't have a common ideology. Yeah, and the Europeans say, how can that be? And I say, well, you guys are all interested in weird political extreme stuff. Uh, we don't have uh, black shirts and Oswald Mosley, you know, fascists. We don't have communists here. And we're kind of happy about that because when you get to a big global crisis, like say the Great Depression, um, we get FDR and you get Nazis. And we <laughs> 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 think that's a really good idea. <laughs> I don't like FDR, but I do like him now. See the point? It's a lot better than the alternative. Now yeah. you see the point? This is how all... Now remember that right now, there just about every government in the world claims to represent the interests of the consent of the governed. There are only a few that are authorized by God, like Iran or Vatican City or North Korea. All right? Hold on for a second. Um, what that means is that all of the governments in the world have some kind of representative assembly. And it's either derived from the French tradition or the English tradition. And that's how all the political parties and all the spectrum of political ideology work. You see how history can be a devastating discipline. 
if you cut the Gordian knot, just get rid of an awful lot of crap, right? People that talk about a third party date don't know what they're talking about, literally, a camera. So the, so the countries with like bicameral, does that usually mean that, does that, does federalism usually play into that yeah. too? And then the ones with, that are unicameral, um, federalism wouldn't well, much more centralized. Right. Okay. Because all you need is a bare majority. Yeah. So that's how, that's why America doesn't have much of ideology and the Europeans don't understand it. And the Americans look at this and say, why would you want crazy lefties and crazy righties? Why? So that you can have a catastrophe when push comes to shove? You're better off looking for the center. And that's why they say American politics isn't about it. And we say, thank God. <laughs> it's a good job. It's not about anything. You're actually having real discussions. We, just, we, we argue whether we should increase taxes 3% to 5%. You argue about whether you should abolish the family. Okay. Well, um, I think that this is relatively benign as opposed to malign politics. Yeah. Um, just lost his name. Who wrote 1984? Orwell. Orwell. What was England at that at Orwell's time a unicameral assembly because yeah, because okay. the uh, they pulled the rug out from under the House of Lords. Okay. Because at that point in time, Orwell is warning England that Russia, like communism, doesn't come from He's Russia. He's a socialist person like communism. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, that's why there's a larger spectrum of opinion in these uh, unicameral assemblies. Yeah. Where is Huxley from? England. Okay. Okay. And. Uh, Apart from Iran and Vatican City, this is the structure of all current governments, which have all been the product of colonialism, expanding the English and French traditions. Yeah. So we we've looked at what happens when you apply change to all this. Mm -hmm. uh, start looking uh, a little bit closer to home uh, after we get the, the nuclear bomb and American Empire, uh, in which it, when you have devices and situations that require uh, immediate decisions uh, in a system that is designed to prevent immediate decisions. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to get the, emer the emergence of the imperial presidency. This comes from the Tonkin Resolution, 1964. Now, I actually know, I've been told the story behind that. I think, I, I think it's true, but I don't know for certain. I can't get the data. Um, uh, at the same, or one of the, the same organization where I met, Ariana, um, I met a spook, and this guy's an old CIA hand. And we're sitting having a drink at the bar. And I happen to mention something about the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, and he just laughs at me. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was this. The Navy reported in a garbled way, radio, um, that they were under fire from North, uh, North Vietnamese vessels. But they were not, but since they were in international waters, they didn't know if they were supposed to return fire or what they were supposed to do. So, we get a garbled message in DC saying one of our warships is being attacked. The CIA relays this to the legislature and to the president. And the president and the Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the Senate are both getting together and said, get all these guys up. We've got to have a decision right now. Right? Because only the, uh, the, uh, only the Congress has the right to make war. Yeah. All right. They bring them in. And they are very surly and very Half of them have been taken out of their mistress's bed. Right? <laughs> they are not enthusiastic about being here. The ones that are sober, and that's a percentage. I mean, just don't want them here. Like, what the hell are we coming to spend at 3 o'clock in the morning for? Okay, now, he says, here's what he's been messing. 
the left has interpreted this as a sinister conspiracy by certain elites in Washington to get special privileges given to the president because they agreed, look, we can't decide this on a moment's notice, so we're going to give the president the right in the Gulf of Tonkin resolution to do what he thinks necessary and then get back to us within 90 days. That way we can sleep it off. Right? So these, this increases the, and magnifies the power of the presidency enormously. Now, the old spook told him, this is cute. He said, look, a couple of hours later, once the uh, Congress and the Senate had been uh, assembled, um, we got a better transmission. And it turns out that they weren't under fire and they weren't being attacked. And uh, we weren't actually on the brink of war with anybody. But the problem is, the hell do you say now? Right? You, you want to go back to the Senate and tell them that, oh, sorry, we, we sort of messed up? No, no, no. She said, look, we just stuck with the original story that we're being attacked. And um, they said, okay, if, you have, if that's what you think, you're being attacked. But he said, it turns out that it was actually um, human stupidity, not a conspiracy. Right? <laughs> Nobody wanted to lose their job, which is what's going to do. I mean, look, if you tell these senators that we got you up at 3 o'clock in the morning so you come in and vote on a non-issue, you are going to lose your position. None of them wanted to do that. They said, the CIA is probably a nice place to work. We were good at what we did, just that, well, you know, mistakes happen. Um, in history, always assume that stupidity takes precedence over conspiracy. All right? Yeah. Um, so as, like, in, in American history, we can see that the president has been getting more power since the founding, and right. also so with the Supreme Court. Right. Um, do these fights for power that are, you know, like it's very hard to backtrack once you give something to say the president of the Supreme Court, it's almost impossible to take that away. Right. Are those small movements towards what would end up in this being a unicameral system? I don't know, we haven't had enough time to see it. It's possible, right? we'll see. Here's the way you take a little further though. Um, so the Friends of the Moon prosper in the unicameral assembly, they become, they get their own newspaper, and their own website, and they get, building and make speeches and all the, the opportunities flock there because that's where the money is. But then it turns out that the friends of Neptune don't like the moon. So they form their own breakaway party. Now in the bicameral assembly, the same thing happens to the friends of Neptune that happens to the friends of the moon, which is nothing. On the other hand, in a, in a unicameral assembly, all of a sudden now Neptune is in play. So now we're going to start sucking up to the, the pro-Neptune lobby. And the guys that couldn't make a deal with the Lunar Party make a deal with the Neptune Party. This is going to happen ad infinitum. That's where how the, the spectrum expands, where we add a new political ideology and a new political party. And it just goes this way. All right? They go as far as they can to the extremes. That's the difference, then, in the political ideologies and in the political party structures of all legislatures. Yeah. So just to put, apply this in modern politics, the, the Brexit movement was that two or three percent, and they aligned themselves with a party, and then right. got 51% of the vote. That's the Tories, now they have to live with it. All right, but this is, as far as I know, I mean, I could be wrong, maybe there are counterexamples, maybe the, you know, it doesn't account for anything, I don't know everything about politics, but this is suspiciously concise and clear and coherent. And it's, as far as I can, at least as far as my historical knowledge goes, this looks like the way it works. If I were asked to draw up a, a, a constitution 
For a small country like, say, Iceland, I'd say unicameral assembly, you're all the same people, you don't have much, that much to argue about. Um, make it responsive to the people. If I were drawing up a constitution for, say, Russia, well, this is huge, and there are all kinds of ethnicities and different beliefs. You guys desperately needed two House legislature. Why? Because it's really hard to wreck, and you don't want to create a civil war. Right? There's not much of a chance of a civil war in a small, homogenous country. There's a big chance of it in anything besides of Russia. Same sort of thing with China. If they were able to give up the CCP and come up with some kind of legislature, they absolutely have to choose a two-capital legislature. Yeah. Um, would totalitarian governments just be examples of unicameral societies that have like complete control? Well, they're not unicameral because uh, they don't get voted. They can't be voted so out. There's no representation. Right. So there's no. Uh, there's no checks and balances in a dictatorship, whereas in a unicameral assembly, if people don't like what you're doing, they can always vote you out and vote the other party. You know? I just think, how come they would name all these, these like in France, it's called a, a bicameral system, but it's not actually. So like, why do they just give the title of that? Um, tradition, or because there are constituencies that demand some uh, mode of expression without actually dominating political life. Yeah. Right? Uh, in America, it was the state. Yeah. In uh, England, it was the aristocrats. But the point is, as far as I know, legislatures come in two sizes, unicameral and bicameral. When they encounter political conflict, what emerges is viable third parties or not viable third parties. And that's going to determine what the political party structure is going to look like. Yeah. What did, uh, the, I forget when it happened, but the changing of the the source of the Senate from the 1876. What did that do to American politics? Um, it made it more responsive to the people, but it also meant that uh, the real power that is already operating in states was no longer as directly represented. Prior to being directly elected, they were elected by state legislatures, which means de facto that the governor of the state is going to be able to manipulate the legislature to get the guy that he wants. Right? That's Alexander Hamilton's idea. There are some people that are so ambitious and so dangerous, we gotta put them in their own house. Is this, are you understanding what I'm telling mm -hmm. you how, how this yes. works? This, as far as I know, is how political party systems work. And that's all she wrote. All right, um, I'll see you all on Tuesday. And uh, get some rest, and I'm gonna go get my teeth fixed. I mean, they hurt like hell. And uh, what are we reading for? Uh, Tuesday? Confession. Confession, so okay, that'll be fun, man. Uh, Brave New World. Brave New World. This will be great. Yeah. 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 No, we read it um, in the fall. Yeah. In the early school year, yeah.